This is Guns and Butter. that when people go in and they attack a country like Greece using these gambling instruments and credit default swaps, the money they borrow to mount the attack costs them nothing to borrow. Their interest rate is zero. Uh, they have no cost to launch the attack, and if they make a mistake and they might lose money, then they can always go to Congress and put a gun to Congress's head and say, give us a bailout or we're going to crash the economy, like they did in 2008 when Hank Paulson famously extorted 750 billion from Congress on that day, and we've seen this repeated over and over again. And this is exactly what they're doing to Greece. Papadreo is saying, we can't let this thing crash, our economy will crash. He's basically holding the country ransom uh, on behalf of international financial terrorists. And the country is being held ransom, it's being occupied by financial terrorists, and the people are waking up to this. They're in the street, they're braving the tear gas, and they're saying, no, we're not going to pay. And it's happening in Athens, it's happening in Dublin, it's happening in Cairo, it's happening in Tunis, it's happening in Madison, Wisconsin. It's a global insurrection against banker occupation. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Max Kaiser. Today's show, Global Insurrection Against Banker Occupation. Max Kaiser is a financial analyst, television and radio host, journalist and entrepreneur. He is host of the bi-weekly Max Kaiser Report with Tracy Herbert on Russia Today, is co-host with Tracy Herbert of the weekly radio talk show The Truth About Markets on Resonance 104.4 FM in London, and is host of the weekly On the Edge with Max on Press TV. He is a frequent guest on Al Jazeera English and France 24. Max Kaiser is creator of Pirate My Film, an alternative media funding mechanism that supports the Creative Commons. Max Kaiser, welcome. Bye, always a pleasure to speak with you. Hey Max, it's great to talk to you again. You have just returned to Paris from Athens. You spoke at the big rally in Sigtagma Square on Friday. Greeks are rebelling against proposed austerity measures. How was the atmosphere in Greece? Well, it's very exciting, yes. We were right in the square. Uh, got my first taste of tear gas. Uh, was pretty intense. They lobbed 200 canisters of tear gas at the mob. And this was uh, much more than they had ever done before. They had police dressed up as, as anarchists that were beating people. And they really made an all-out effort to clear the square from the people that had gathered there to protest these austerity measures. Uh, the next day... I was uh, speaking in the square to a few thousand people about what I saw as the situation and who was doing what to whom and what could be done about it. And I got a really good response. Uh, we're there shooting a documentary that uh, is going very well. And the, the atmosphere is very exciting. You know, we've been to Dublin during its rebellion, uh, Athens. Uh, we were in Cairo. We were in Beirut. We've been traveling all over the all over the world as this global insurrection continues to take shape against the the banker occupation. Well, you say that Greece is under financial occupation and that the occupying forces need to be thrown out of the country. Who are the occupying forces? Well, in Greece, they call them the Troika, and this is the ECB, the EU, and the IMF. 
And these are the three main bodies that have gotten together to occupy Greece financially and to attempt to impose these draconian austerity measures. And uh, some of the recent history is quite startling. For example, the IMF got the current Papandreou government to sign off on what's known as the Memorandum, which gives the IMF powers to subvert the Greek constitution, to uh, actually seize Greek assets. For example, the, um, the monuments, the transportation, the islands, anything. The IMF has the ability to seize these assets to pay for the debts that the Greek people never incurred. That also includes 111 tons of gold, which Greece still has. Well, why did the Greek government take out these loans in the first place? Did they need the money, or were the loans fraudulently induced? The story really goes back to 2001, when Greece joined the euro. At that time, they didn't qualify under the Master uh, Treaty Agreement in terms of the amount of debt that they could carry relative to GDP. So, lo and behold, along came Goldman Sachs, who showed them how they could hide debt and cooked their books. And they did this, and as a result, they were allowed into the euro. Once they were allowed into the euro, uh, it was easy then for these banks, including Goldman and others, to pile on the debt and to pile on hundreds of billions of dollars worth of debt in compliance with the government. And now that the debt bubble has burst starting in 2007 and 2008, and the banks don't want the debt on their books, they're trying to get the people to pay for these bad debts that came from abroad. And uh, the people are saying, we're not going to pay these debts. Well, now, was this the plan all along? Did Goldman Sachs know eventually or assume eventually that the people would have to pay them back? Because obviously Goldman Sachs must have known that uh, Greece couldn't afford to take out these loans. Well, it's the same game plan we've seen in Latin America and Central America for decades. The banks come in, they offer loans, and then when these countries can't pay for the loans, they seize the assets. And this is the whole beginning of the uh, period that we call the period of the banana republics. You know, these Central American, South American countries that ended up being uh, subjected to onerous debt liabilities. Argentina, of course, is a great example. Citibank went in there with billions and billions of debt that they then coerced the government to put onto the government's balance sheet, and then the government went ahead and tried to collect that from the people. And this is something we've seen before. We haven't seen it in Western Europe before. So this is now in Ireland, in Greece, uh, soon in Portugal, and it's going to work its way up to Spain. This is uh, what we've seen in other countries. We just haven't seen it in Western Europe. Uh, so people are surprised, I guess, that these bankers, international bankers, would target uh, Westerners and Western Europeans, but they have ransacked so much of the rest of the global economy, they're running out of countries to rape and pillage. And, you know, I think the fact that Dominic Strauss-Kahn is uh, charged with rape is a very good metaphor for what these institutions are best at. Well, now, right. Now, what you're referring to is, what, the structural adjustment? That's the euphemism they use at the IMF and the World Bank? that they've been doing this to third world countries for decades. That's correct. Uh, banks like to lend money. You know, that's how they make their money, is lending money. And uh, in the case of Greece, 
it's clearly a case of what you could call a leverage buyout. And Greece is not a very big country. It's only about $200 billion or so in GDP, not even as big as Walmart, one U.S. company. And so the banking community saw this as a pinata that they'd like to whack. Uh, just like if you remember back in the 1980s, the wave of hostile raids and leverage buyouts during the Michael Milken era, the idea is you use the assets of the company, or in this case the country, as collateral to line up loans to take that country or company over and then to sell the assets into the open market, in this case privatize the assets, and hope there's something left over that you can keep as profit above and beyond the fees. The memorandum, for example, that I just told you about, uh, that gave the Troika this um, access to Greek assets above and beyond the mandate of the Constitution. They were charged $1.2 in fees just to put together that memorandum. So the fees involved are quite stunning. And um, remember, the IMF is bankrupt. It was bankrupt 10 years ago, 5 years ago, and 1 year ago. If it wasn't for the IMF committing this leveraged buyout of Greece, it would have to declare bankruptcy itself. The IMF has no money. None of these banks have any money. Greece has assets, and they're, they're seizing these assets using these uh, banking maneuvers. Right. They, they use loans themselves or debt themselves to buy out. I mean, that's what they did in these leveraged buyouts, right? That's right. They, uh, they, they buy out using borrowed money. And then to pay back the loans, in this case, they're going to privatize much of Greece's infrastructure and assets and probably take the gold. You have referred to a daisy chain of fraud. What do you mean? Well, in the case of Greece, for example, you've got a lot of the European banks own Greek debt. And of course, if Greece goes bad, if they default on the debt, these banks will lose a lot of money. But the banks bought insurance in the form of a credit default swap from Wall Street banks. So as bad as the European banks will be when Greece defaults, and it will default, it's just a question of when, the money that will be lost by European banks will be a lot less than the money lost by American banks. The American banks are on the hook for $127 billion in credit default swap losses, and that's a direct hit to their bottom line. Oh, and guess who's involved in that business? AIG. Believe it or not, AIG after they committed massive fraud in 2008 and were bailed out by the government then and caught engaged in all manner of illicit and unconscionable banking terrorist acts, they're still around and still doing the same stuff. Now, how is Goldman Sachs shorting Greece? Well, it's not hard to short a country using a credit default swap. Uh, basically, uh, they engage in what is called a naked short sale, which is tantamount to counterfeiting. And it just means that the banks on Wall Street, including Goldman and others, they simply print uh, these uh, contracts that have no collateral value whatsoever. They only go up if the um, asset in question is affected in price or um, has a, an event of some type. And so they have a vested interest in collapsing this economy and destroying this economy. Uh, and uh, they saw this in 2008. You know, they made a lot of money in the collapse of the economy back then, and they're looking to repeat the trick now. Uh, depending on the particulars of this 
collapse going forward. So they have to be careful to manage the collapse. It's a controlled demolition. Uh, if it goes the wrong way, they might actually lose some money. So they have to make sure that they're completely controlling all of the political machinations in Europe, in Greece, in Brussels, to make sure that the collapse goes in the way that they hope it goes so they can make the most possible money. They're pulling the strings. Uh, remember in 2008, Lloyd Blankfein and John Paulson, the big hedge fund manager, were having dinner across from the Acropolis and discussing how to sell the Greek assets once the country collapsed. This is the same thing I observed in Iceland a year before that economy collapsed. I made a documentary film about it called Money Geyser. I said, within a year, this economy and this currency is going to collapse in Iceland. And of course, this is exactly what happened. And how did I know? Because the bankers in the hotel sushi restaurant from Lehman and Bear and these other, now they're gone, these companies, but they were still alive back then. They were discussing crashing the economy using credit default swaps and other derivatives and how they would make out like bandits um, on the crash and then selling it, trying to sell assets on the back end for uh, pennies on the dollar. Well, now, when Goldman Sachs goes to short Greece, how specifically do they do that? Well, it's primarily, again, if you're using derivatives, and most of the derivatives that are traded today of the five to six hundred trillion in derivative contracts that are traded, they are traded over the counter or off the books or what's called the dark exchange or the dark market. It's totally unaccounted for, there's no regulations, and it's uh, completely out of the view of uh, anyone but the bankers involved. And this dark market, even Gordon Brown, former prime minister of Britain, referred to the shadow banking system as a huge problem because it's in scope and size equivalent to the visible banking system. So it's a multi-trillion dollar banking uh, facility that is used by interbank and hedge funds and insiders to move trillions of dollars. Remember, there's $4 trillion worth of Forex or foreign exchange traded every single day. Uh, they move trillions of these contracts back and forth for fees, basically to make money on fees. But uh, the quickest and most profitable way to make money in the securities industry has always been to crash a stock or to crash a country because fear has always been a more powerful mover of prices than faith. This is even when I was working on Wall Street, very quickly you, you learn that fear can crash a stock a lot faster than faith can build the price up. And if you're on the right side of a crash, you can make a lot of money in a very short period of time. So these are basically financial arsonists. They use derivatives to burn down countries, to burn down companies, uh, to make money on all the bets that they've made burning these countries down. These specific contracts that they use, the credit default swap, I guess you could say is the financial weapon of uh, mass destruction du jour. It's a product that was invented by Blythe Masters at J.P. Morgan a few years back. It's a non-collateralized uh, insurance product. And, and in the Commodity Futures Modernization Act of 2000, it allowed for these particular class of securities to be created and traded that make it impossible for anyone to um, sue dealers on the basis of fraud. They stripped out any, any possibility of attacking these securities on the basis of fraudulent behavior by, by effectively 
saying that they were in fact gambling instruments. That you can't you can't sue us for fraud because these are pure gambling instruments. So the Commodity Futures and Modernization Act created a class of derivatives that were pure gambling instruments. And and then they're highly leveraged gambling instruments. Leveraged by money that costs nothing to borrow. Remember that when people go in and they attack a country like Greece using these gambling instruments and credit default swaps, the money they borrow to mount the attack costs them nothing to borrow. Their interest rate is zero. Uh, they have no cost to launch the attack. And if they make a mistake and they might lose money, then they can always go to Congress and put a gun to Congress's head and say, give us a bailout or we're going to crash the economy, like they did in 2008 when Hank Paulson famously extorted $750 billion from Congress on that day. And we've seen this repeated over and over again. And this is exactly what they're doing to Greece. Pompadreo is saying, we can't let this thing crash. Our economy will crash. He's basically holding the country ransom uh, on behalf of international financial terrorists. And the country is being held ransom. It's being occupied by financial terrorists. And the people are waking up to this. They're in the street. They're braving the tear gas. And they're saying, no, we're not going to pay. And it's happening in Athens. It's happening in Dublin. It's happening in Cairo. It's happening in Tunis. It's happening in Madison, Wisconsin. It's a global insurrection against banker occupation. You mentioned the uh, Commodities Modernization Act. That was passed under Clinton, wasn't it? Yes, it was. In the last few months of his presidency, he passed the Commodity Futures Modernization Act. That's correct. I'm speaking with financial analyst and broadcast journalist Max Kaiser. Today's show, Global Insurrection Against Banker Occupation. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, when you referred to the uh, dark markets or the secret kind of uh, trading that goes on that isn't transparent, does that have anything to do with the intercontinental exchange in London, the ICE? All these markets and exchanges and platforms are connected on the back end. So there's no market or exchange in the world that doesn't share plumbing with all the other markets. You could name any, any of these exchanges, any of the major exchanges, and all the regulators who are supposed to be regulating these markets, whether it's the FSA or a serious fraud office in the UK or the SEC or CFTC in the US, they're all basically uh, overworked, underpaid, uh, in the pockets. You know, they're captured. They're captured regulators. They don't do any regulation. But they're all essentially um, connected. And Gary Gensler, who is the current chairman of the CFTC, uh, supposed to be monitoring the futures trading business in the U.S., like on the NYMEX or the COMEX. He is now embroiled in a massive scandal for manipulation of prices on the silver market and the gas futures markets. And um, this is just going on um, uh, in a wholesale runaway freight train of fraud that is absolutely destroying the price discovery mechanism. It's killing any kind of price discovery in a legitimate matter is causing energy and food prices to go so high that it's causing starvation around the world and nobody is stopping to to try to put an end to this it's growing it's a cancer that's growing exponentially now I'll give you one industry that managed to save itself from the ravages of the CFTC and the futures market and this was last year when Cantor Fitzgerald, the bank on Wall Street, was set to launch box office futures contracts. Uh, and the MPAA, Motion Picture Association of America, 
figured out at the last minute that this would destroy the Hollywood industry as these products have destroyed other industries, whether it's the housing industry or the energy industry. And they lobby Washington to outlaw box office features contracts as they relate to their industry. And they succeeded in passing a bill to outlaw box office features trading. And they saved their industry. So why can't people who uh, are being shell-shocked by rising energy food prices get their representatives to lobby Washington to outlaw these speculative contracts that are forcing them into poverty. It's a shame. But Hollywood was able to defend itself against the financial terrorists. They, they're the only industry that I know of in the past 10 years that's been able to successfully defend themselves. Well, that's very interesting. I didn't know about that. So that was legislation passed in Congress. Did that have to be signed by the president? Yes, it was part of a much larger bill. Uh, this happened, um, I can look it up online, but I think it was in the, you know, the waning months of last year. Um, if you look up box office features in Cantor Fitzgerald, it'll give you the exact timing and the exact bill. But the MPAA, Motion Picture Association of America, is extremely fierce in defending the copyright cartel, as I call them, the copyright interests. And uh, they figured out at the last minute that if you let a bunch of traders speculated hundreds of billions of dollars with the box office features contracts, you're going to destroy Hollywood as that industry is known. So they used their pressure of their lobbying interest to outlaw this particular product and they saved themselves. That's the only industry in the last 10 years that, that I've, I've seen been able to successfully defend themselves. I understand that the International Chamber of Commerce has been meeting in Athens. What are they doing there? You have also said that Steve Forbes was at this meeting. Yeah, I came out of the train station on the day of the big protests, and um, I actually I walked into the wrong hotel, the hotel next door to the hotel where I was staying, and I'm sitting there in the hotel for a few minutes, and in walks Steve Forbes, and I actually, or, you know, uh, bumped into his father, Malcolm Forbes, back in the '80s. You know, when he had his yacht parked in the New York Harbor when I was a stockbroker on Wall Street. And so I kind of know the family a little bit. So um, I chatted briefly with Steve in the lobby of this hotel. And he's there with the International Chamber of Commerce. And they're there to discuss carving up Greece's assets. Well, uh, did he tell you that? Or did you hear some discussions among these members of the uh, Chamber of Commerce? Basically, what his message was that the deals are fantastic, the great deals. We got great people lined up to buy these assets for pennies on the dollar. The jackals are, are there, but just 50 yards from where the tear gas was being thrown. Uh, but it makes perfect sense. I mean, I don't see why anyone would be surprised by this. This is uh, what they've been waiting for. It's what they've been planning for. They, it's, it's inevitable that if you load a country up with hundreds of billions of dollars of the debt that they can't possibly pay, they're going to go bankrupt, and then you can pick off their assets for pennies on the dollar. That's, that's the way business is done. Well, so how can Greek assets be grabbed? What is the mechanism? Privatization. So the roads, uh, Credit Suisse has already basically brokered away the um, lotto. The state lottery has been lined up. They found a buyer for it. The, uh, some of the infrastructure projects and the roadways, they've got a buyer for that. Uh, they're privatizing everything. Everything's for sale. Um, and presumably uh, some islands will be sold. Um, the gold, as I mentioned, is up for sale thanks to the memorandum that gives the IMF access to any asset. Just looking at uh, 
news articles. Um, so far on the table to be sold, a stake in state-controlled telecom uh, is to be sold. A stake in the state-controlled uh, post office bank is to be sold. A 17% stake in the power company is to be sold. A reduction in holdings in the ports. Uh, they're going to sell off parts of the ports. And they're going to sell off uh, their water company. And I know they're also going to be selling off their lottery business. Uh, so everything is up for sale. And this is just the first tranche, the first um, opportunity to buy into these assets. And, of course, uh, once these foreign interests take controlling interest in these assets, they'll be able to buy the entire asset. And so this is, this is what's going on right now. They are The jackals are circling, and they're looking to pick up all the strategic assets. Uh, for as cheap as they possibly can, for a crisis that they created. Well, look at how this uh, crisis was engineered. Not only do you have these foreign banks uh, layering on all this debt that can't possibly pay back, but then you have the rating agencies like Moody's and S&P and Fitch come in and they keep downgrading Greek debt, saying that they can't pay the debt, um, while they work with the banks who are floating the debt. There's a huge conflict of interest. Like Moody's is famous for you can buy a rating from Moody's. You know, you give enough money and they'll rate whatever you want them to rate for whatever rating you want them to rate it. You know, they're totally corrupt. So then you've got the hedge funds like John Paulson who are in on the scam. They're colluding with the government. So the government, the rating agencies, the hedge funds, and the banks are all colluding to destroy a country. The country doesn't have a chance. I read that there are plans to sell off the Greek telecom for 30 cents on the dollar. Now, who is going to do this? The Greek government has to agree to do this, right? They've already agreed to do it. Okay. Now, if the debt, if the Greek debt is not secured, does the euro go under? No, not necessarily, because Greece is only 3% of the eurozone economy. Talk about the euro, you're talking about Germany and the Bundesbank. And Germany is probably the most... A successful dynamic economy in the world right now, more so than even China, or certainly more so than the U.S. And they have a huge export business. Their economy is booming. Employment is is improving, and um, they make up the eurozone. They are the eurozone. Now, what's interesting, Bonnie, is that for conspiracy-minded folks out there, I'll throw you a bone. Um, after World War II, of course, Germany was split up. And the idea was you never want these East and West Germany to come back together again because of the propensity of this country and their imperial ambitions. But um, under the euro, when that was created, uh, East and West Germany came under the same umbrella, but it was diluted. It was diluted to the effect that you've got all these other nations part of the euro, so they couldn't possibly manage to dominate uh, in the face of the entire eurozone under the same currency, the euro. Well, look what's happening. The euro is breaking apart. Greece is going to fall out of the euro, and so will several other countries. And what will be left will be uh, by standard currency. There will be a north and south euro, possibly even just uh, three currencies, and one of those currencies being the uh, Bund, the German Bundesbank and the Deutsche Mark. So here you have Germany reunified, its own central bank, its own currency, biggest exporter in the world, and you have all the ingredients for a uh, basically a uh, fourth rank. Well, now, if Germany does break away, let's say, 
Uh, and it's a very strong economy, and it has this huge export market. Wouldn't the value then of the German currency go up, and that would hurt them, right? That's right. That's why they like having Greece and uh, Ireland around, because it keeps the euro cheaper. So it's a game that they play. It, it, they make a big deal out of this because they want to scare people out of the euro because they have a huge export business. But even in the face of all this, the euro has been very, very strong because traders know the game and they know what Germany is up to. But uh, once they, yeah, once they jettison the weak hands of the euro, then the then the what's left will go up in price a lot. Like the Swiss franc, for example, is hitting all-time new highs against the dollar. And uh, that'll be the, the story for whatever currency remains that's tied to Germany. Well, I was going to ask you about the value of the euro vis-a-vis uh, -vis the dollar. The euro has remained strong against the dollar. In the near term, do you think that will continue? Absolutely, because the dollar is by far in worse shape. The euro has Germany. What does the dollar have? California? Nothing. The dollar has nothing. There's nothing in the U.S. economy that's any, that's any good, except for their ability to export a lot of weapons and to um, you know, export copyrighted material like Hollywood films. But other than that, the, the, there is not much there in the U.S. economy. Certainly, it's nowhere near Germany. So uh, the dollar is the world reserve currency, but now that's changing. Now, um, after World War II, of course, the U.S. dollar was the world reserve currency. America had 22,000 tons of gold, and it was the undisputed champ. But since the introduction of the euro, now you've got 30% of world trade is in the euro as a reserve currency. 70% um, is in the dollar, and the remainder is in uh, whatever is remaining is in uh, various other currencies. So we're heading toward a situation where the dollar will shrink to 30% of world business, the euro will probably stay at around 30%. And these other countries like Brazil and other heavy export-led nations, uh, those currencies and the Russia, uh, China, Brazil, Iran, uh, they'll make up the balance. I'm speaking with financial analyst and broadcast journalist Max Kaiser. Today's show, Global Insurrection Against Banker Occupation. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Do you think that the bankers in Europe underestimated Greece? In what way? Well, that they thought that the, the Greek uh, citizens would just go along with this, that there wouldn't be trouble there? Uh, I don't think they pay any attention to the citizens one way or the other. As we know from what I just told you, the uh, Steve Forbes and his group, 50 yards from the tear gas and the riots, it didn't phase them one bit. They're, they're just collateral damage. They, they have no say in this. They have no representation. They have no voting block to speak of. They have no economic power. They're nothing. They're just serfs in their view. That's their view. There's nothing to fear from a bunch of uh, you know, rabble-rousers. They have no power. Well, bring us up to date on the lawsuits that are planned against bankers and the government in Greece. Who are the attorneys and who would be sued? Well, there's two major guys uh, who are spearheading this lawsuit. There's uh, Dr. Tobras and uh, Mr. Nulis, who you might want to talk to on your show. They're, 
they are going after Goldman uh, and the government for treason. It turns out that the government sold these carte default swabs held by the Postal Service Bank, the government-held postal bank, uh, to friends and cronies for a billion dollars. Uh, six months later, those same credit default swaps were sold for $27 billion in what's clearly a sweetheart deal. The, the exact numbers are close enough for this conversation. So that's a sweetheart deal where friends and cronies pocketed $20 billion uh, in a matter of six months. And this is these are foreign interests that the government was dealing with. So under a statute which would be that you can't do deals that – sell the um, underlying assets of your country to foreigners, it's treason. So they're, they're going after Papandreou for treason, economic treason. And named in the suit are also Goldman Sachs and Lloyd Blankfein, and uh, they're going to subpoena Lloyd Blankfein, is from my understanding. Now, these lawsuits have been brought in Greece, right? Um, do the Greek politicians have anything to do with these lawsuits? Well, the, these guys are, one guy is a former parliamentarian uh, and who's launching this suit, along with uh, Dr. Tabras, who's a, um, a journalist at this point, um, and he's been communicating the particulars to the people, and particularly in the legal community and to the judges. I had an opportunity to speak to a room full of, of lawyers and judges uh, when I was in Athens, and to put forth some of my ideas I had on, on the uh, lawsuit against the banks and the government uh, relating to the acts of treason, financial treason. And um, yeah, it went over very well. You know, People want to claw back the money that was stolen from them, and they uh, want to go on the offensive. You know, they're tired of being on the defensive. They want to go on the offensive, and they want to try to claw back this money. And uh, they've got the government and these foreign bankers in their crosshairs. Well, now, the citizen demonstrations in Greece are to force the Greek government to do what? Now, just about a minute ago, it sounded to me like you thought maybe the demonstrations were going to be fairly ineffective. Yeah, well, they, they're playing for time. Now, there's a couple of, couple of major themes here. The entire Eurozone, orchestrated by Germany, is in the process of putting together a trillion dollar or so Europe-wide lending facility. And they want to create some monetary and fiscal policies and, and um, some, some European-wide bond markets that would effectively create another layer of banking uh, on top of the current layer. If they can uh, play this out for time, and this will take about 18 months to 24 months to get this in place, then they can take the entire Greek debt problem and roll it up to a new European-wide lending facility and hope they can deal with it over time. In a similar way that the savings and loan industry, through the creation of the Resolution Trust Corporation, bundled together all the bad savings and loan debts going back to the 1980s, and then they worked through that pile of debt over the next 20 years. Uh, they don't have the facilities in place to do anything like that, in Europe, and they're putting something together like that now. So they're hoping that they can roll all this bad debt into this new super Europe-wide lending facility, but it's going to take time to do this. So they're playing for time. Meanwhile, you've got these jackals who are on the sidelines who are trying to force the country into bankruptcy so they can pick up these assets 
for pennies on the dollar. The government is completely ineffective, and they don't know what they're doing. The people don't want to sell these assets. They don't want to lose their sovereignty to a bunch of foreign bankers. And this is the nature of the conflict. Um, the bondholders and the forces in Germany would like to extend this out as long as they possibly can. But the longer that it goes, the longer they extend it, the worse it is for the Greek people. They've already given up uh, rights vis-a-vis -vis the memorandum that we talked about. Uh, they are, their, their assets are being auctioned off as we speak. So the longer they wait, the worse it is for them. Um, and uh, any news that comes out of the Eurozone, out of Germany, that says, well, we think we found a solution, it's, it's propaganda, it's nonsense. It's just trying to appease the crowd to get them to quiet down and not to continue being irate uh, for as long as they possibly can. They're just trying to placate them, uh, and they're playing this game with them. And, uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's kind of falling apart, and, and people in Athens look over to people in Madrid, and they look over to people in Dublin, and then they get on the internet and they say, is, is this happening to you too? And they're like, yeah, they're doing the same thing to us in Madrid. They're doing the same thing to us in Dublin. So it's hard for these bankers and the media to uh, put out the propaganda, to convince people to lay down and not to revolt because they're talking to people in their, their immediate neighboring countries who are suffering the exact same problem with the exact same people doing the exact same thing. And this is why this global insurrection against banker occupation is a force that was not predicted by the bankers. This was not factored into the calculus of their, of their bond portfolios, if you will. They, they didn't figure on what would happen if people in all these countries started communicating and figuring out what was going on and then revolting uh, in all these countries simultaneously. That's where, that's where this is going to get very, very interesting. Because if you have a simultaneous eruption and a revolution in three or four European countries simultaneously, this will overpower even the forces of Germany to keep the lid on. And then this, this is just going to escalate into a you know, historic um, battle uh, for democracy against this entrenched kleptocracy. Well, right. I mean, it's what you're saying then. The only way to really stop what's going on is to actually bring the governments down. I don't see any, any other way. Uh, the government uh, is supposed to represent the interests of the people, and if the government is not doing that, it's like uh, Rousseau said uh, 200 years ago. If the social contract is broken, the people must revolt. Right. And now, with regard to Greece, there is no agreement in sight. I've read that decisions on the EU bailout of Greece have been put off until sometime in July, but you mentioned this new lending facility that they're trying to put together. Even if such a thing were put together, wouldn't that just delay the inevitable anyway? That's right. But it, it's a way to water down any resistance and to kick the can down the road and to uh, appease the bankers. You see the same thing in the United States. The, the mortgage fraud, for example, there was never any re resolution to the millions of mortgages that were fraudulently written by these Wall Street banks, and then they packaged those fraudulent mortgages and sold them as securitized to uh, portfolios to other banks. That was against the law. And then they made negative bets against the very securitized faulty mortgages that they packaged to make money on an inside information that they were selling fraudulent debt to the other bank. 
So they committed fraud in, in a trifecta of fraud simultaneously coming out of Wall Street. And so far, there's been no accountability, no repercussions. They may be paid a little fine here and there. But what's, what's left is the housing market in the U.S. is still crashing. The poverty rate is still increasing. Uh, unemployment is still going up. And so the pressure cooker is building in the U.S. too. Well, in your speech in uh, Syntagma Square, you said that you were speaking out against the banks in your own self-interest. What did you mean by that? Because once Greece falls, then Portugal, then Spain, and once Western Europe has been gobbled up by these financial terrorists in the IMF and the, these other global banks, they're going to go to the U.S. in a big way, more so than what they're doing now. They'll have infinitely more power, more credit, and um, so they're coming. They're coming to you. I'm speaking with financial analyst and broadcast journalist Max Kaiser. Today's show, Global Insurrection Against Banker Occupation. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You have developed something called Pirate My Film at piratemyfilm.com. You describe Pirate My Film as the place where politics, economics, and activism come together. What is Pirate My Film, and how does it work? Well, Pirate My Film combines two, two things, crowdfunding and copyright-free media. So I will talk about these two things separately and then give you an example. So crowdfunding is where we can go onto the site ourselves, and if we need $5,000 to make a film in Athens, we can post a project on the site and get people to put up 5 or 10 bucks. And after a period of a few months, we have $5,000 in commitments, and then we use that money to go make our film. Now, the film, once we make it, is released onto the web under a Creative Commons license. There's no copyright attached. It's copyright-free media which I think is very important because copyright laws in the U.S. are doing a tremendous amount of damage to intellectual property and to the public domain. Because the public domain, every time they extend copyright law, is shrunk. And it's from the public domain that ideas come from. There is no such thing as a purely original idea. All ideas come from the public domain, and all ideas must return to the public domain even Thomas Jefferson knew this. He was totally against intellectual property law. But they created the, the law of copyright as is codified in the Constitution for 14 years with the 14-year extension to give a limited monopoly value to intellectual property. Um, and that's what they agreed upon, weighing, balancing the interests of the public and the private domain. But over the past 20, 30 years, particularly from uh, Hollywood and particularly from Disney, Every time Mickey Mouse was set to enter the public domain, they got Congress to extend copyright by another 20 years, most recently by Sonny Bono. Uh, so now that copyright is lifetime plus 70 years. And you have uh, the very fine legal minds like Lawrence Lessig at Stanford arguing that what you have is effectively perpetual copyright. So that nothing enters the public domain, and the public domain is ever shrinking. And this is our birthright. This is what we draw upon for our thinking, our ideas, our inspiration, our creative impulses, 
And all the time, it's shrinking because more and more of it's being locked up behind corporate balance sheets, behind these ridiculous uh, draconian copyright laws. So in Pirate My Film, all of the material that is crowdfunded by you and the people out there on the web, once it's released onto the internet, we want everyone to pirate my film. Take my film. You can have it for free. It's under a Creative Commons license, which was invented by Lawrence Lessig, and it has no copyright encumbrances attached to it. It's simply returned to the public domain from where these ideas came from. So my hope is that the idea of the Creative Commons copyright scheme has been around for a while, but there was no real economics behind it. So I took a lot of the things I learned from when I created the Hollywood Stock Exchange, which was a, a way to securitize movies and stars into stocks and bonds in a virtual trading environment. And I used that to power this platform of um, funding, crowdfunding, combining with what I would say is copyright-free media to create PirateMyFilm.com. So anybody can list any kind of material that they're looking to, to raise money for films. Uh, they are financed by, the, by the, uh, the crowd, as it were. They trade on this exchange as a virtual security just to give it a little bit of uh, spunk and give it a bit of a trading zip. And um, then the projects are, are financed, produced, and, and then released into the public domain. And it goes on to the pirate networks. Uh, the BitTorrents and, and Pirate Bay and other places so that people can download these things uh, and for free. Oh, well, so I see. So, well, when people buy into Pirate My Film, for instance, well, I, I think I looked on there and for $5 you could buy one share. That's what you're talking about, about crowdfunding. Then if I were to buy a share, would I be making an investment or a donation? Really more like a donation, huh? Yeah, it works out to a donation, and um, that's right. It works out like a donation. So your $5 is, is not an investment. There's nothing. You wouldn't get anything back on it. Now, there is a, I've built into the technology, uh, once it scales up and once I have a million users on this thing, it can generate advertising, and there is advertising revenues that can flow through this that it is possible then I can allow producers of projects to direct any incremental ad revenue back to people who put up that $5 originally. But that piece of the technology has yet to be built out, so I don't think I'll get into that probably until next year. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, it's working pretty well. So it's funding our independent media. And we're going to these hotspots where the, like Athens, and we're making these films, and we're showing things that are not being shown anywhere else, and it's all being funded by the people themselves who are able to, you know, harness the power of their collective share reservations to get us to go wherever they want us to go. So right now, it looks like Madrid is where we'll go next, but it could be Reykjavik if suddenly there's a huge burst of interest in our Reykjavik film in Iceland. That's, that's where we'll go. So it's a way to get the audience and the, the members of PirateMyFilm.com to direct us where we should go next to make the films based on their interest. Well, that's really very interesting and a, a very creative way to fund alternative media, which we really need because it's the media that seems to drive everything. 
Absolutely. So I've been an observer in media on the finance side, in front of the camera, in behind the camera, and in financing the camera. And uh, so I know all the aspects of media. So I try to bring all those threads of experience into this new, this new startup. I've read that the European Central Bank has been bailing out European banks. Are these bailouts against the rules? And now, could bankers be jailed for this? Well, the rules that you're talking about here are minimum capital requirement rules. And the European Central Bank is in violation of these rules. The various central banks around Europe are in violation of these rules. Uh, the European Central Bank ultimately defers to the Bank of International Settlements in Switzerland. They're also in violation of the rules. And so is the Federal Reserve Bank in violation of these rules, because none of them have adequate capital relative to the debts they're carrying on their books. They're all breaking the law. They're all breaking the law 24 hours a day. That's without any doubt. Is the U.S., U.K., and E.U. debt unpayable? Is collapse inevitable? And what would collapse entail? The debt is uh, completely unpayable, and what will happen will be a restructuring of the global currency grid, or currency market. Similar to after World War II, you had Bretton Woods Agreement, and the global currency grid was created, and all the world's currencies were tied to the dollar, and the dollar was tied to gold. Uh, this held the fort for a while. It has broken down over the years. And of course, in 1971, Nixon closed the gold window. That was the end of the, of the U.S. commitment to Bretton Woods. And they've tried floating currencies for 40 years. This has resulted in unsustainable debt increases. And so now we're going to go to Bretton Woods too, basically, uh, which means that there's going to be a new currency grid. They'll figure, as I suggested earlier, You'll have a dollar will no longer be the world reserve currency. It'll be one of three or four reserve world reserve currencies. And it means devaluation. The U.S. dollar is probably going to be the biggest loser. So the dollar will be revalued against the basket of other currencies by probably something on the order of 50%. So everything in the United States will immediately double in price. This will cause a very unpleasant economic situation but um, the U.S. will have nothing to do to stop it because more and more the U.S. is deferring to these international institutions. You know, Obama has already deferred to the U.N. to help him with his Arizona migration problem, uh, and he's deferred to the IMF and other World Bank uh, organizations to sort through other of his other uh, funding problems. So the U.S. is slowly but surely deferring to the global banking institutions, and when it's all over... Uh, everyone in the United States will pay their local tax, their state tax, their federal tax, and their world tax. Because, of course, the new World Bank that will be overseeing this whole thing will have to be funded, and it will be funded from a world tax. Well, well, back to Greece. What is the end game? Is Greece a test run for a run on the U.S.? Well, yeah, I think so, because as I mentioned before, the same groups that were active in Central America, South America, they're now in Western Europe, and from there they go to the U.S. The U.S. is the last and biggest piñata to get whacked. And do you have any idea of what the time frame for these possible developments would be? Are we talking two, three years, more? What, what do you think? 
to get a, a, an idea of the timeline, you watch the housing market. Because remember, the housing market is what got us into this mess. The housing market in 2008, of course, collapsed. And it caused this huge banking collapse. In 2009, they had a bit of a bounce. People were hopeful. There was a so-called recovery, which was, wasn't really a recovery. It was just a reprieve from the major downtrend. And now we're back to the primary downtrend, and housing is now back to its mode of collapsing. In the U.S., you know, the Case-Shiller Index is looking for another 25% drop in housing. And as housing collapses, it's going to pull the banks into it, and it's going to precipitate this event, the events we've been talking about. So um, the question, I think, is how much longer before the housing just completely collapses in major markets like the U.S.? And I can't, I can't see that going on for more than a year because you've already got uh, the backlog of foreclosed properties and short sales and underwater sales are just completely gutting entire cities and entire regions. They're becoming ghost cities and ghost regions. So uh, this, this, is, this, is the, this is the metric to watch to get an idea of how soon before this new uh, configuration of the global currency grid comes about. It'll happen on the heels of another fantastically shocking banking catastrophe tied to the continuation in the collapse of housing. And so you see this ultimately progressing toward a world bank, I think you said. Uh, that's, that makes the most logical progression based on what we've seen so far. The banks love to extend and pretend. They like to try to just do tomorrow instead of doing today. And the way to do that is to just keep adding more and more debt. And so since the sovereigns themselves have exhausted their potential for expanding their balance sheets, like the Federal Reserve in Washington has already got more than $2 trillion in bad debt on its balance sheet. It's, it's reached the limit, in the, literally the, the literal debt ceiling, as they call it. So they have to then go and create a global bank with a global lending facility. It was, it was mentioned at Davos. This past year, just a few months ago, uh, at Davos, they talked about a new $100 trillion lending facility managed by a new global bank where these very sovereign countries could roll their debt up into this new $100 trillion lending facility. So it's already on the drawing board. They're already putting it in place. It's still, they'll talk about it as the grand savior of the world economy. And, uh, but it will mean that everyone will pay a new tax, a world tax. It will mean gross devaluation of the U.S. dollar versus other currencies. And uh, it will mean a loss of sovereignty for everybody. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, if there is a global insurrection against banker occupation, it's possible that if governments were brought down, then who knows what would happen? That's right. you know, that's a wild card. So we know that the outcome on one side, it's a guaranteed losing outcome unless you're one of these bankers. Uh, The other possibility is a wild card. It could be absolute catastrophe or, you know, something good could come out of it. But at least there's a chance of something good coming out of it. Whereas if we just sit back and allow this, this banking monstrosity to continue to grow like it's growing, it's guaranteed that unless you're inside the bank, you are going to be basically an indentured servant, born into debt, live in debt, die in debt. Max Kaiser, thank you very much. Bonnie, always a pleasure. Something
speaking with Max Kaiser. Today's show has been Global Insurrection Against Banker Occupation. Max Kaiser has been involved with markets and finance for 25 years. He started his career as a stockbroker on Wall Street. Max Kaiser is the inventor of the Virtual Specialist Technology Prediction Markets and Karma Bank. He is the creator, co-founder, and former CEO of HSX Holdings Hollywood Stock Exchange, later sold to Cantor Fitzgerald. He is host of the bi-weekly Max Kaiser Report with Stacey Herbert on Russia Today, is co-host of the weekly radio talk show The Truth About Markets on Resonance 104.4 FM in London, and is host of the weekly On the Edge with Max on Press TV. He is a frequent guest on Al Jazeera English and France 24. Visit his website at maxkaiser.com. That's M-A-X-K-E-I-S-E-R dot C-O-M. Also visit piratemyfilm.com to reserve shares in financial activist films written, edited, and directed by Stacey Herbert. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Release. You dig me?